started to get this reputation of being extremely ambitious and extremely confident and people just eventually just left me alone and to get on with it, waiting for me to fail. And of course the failing never came. It's a bit like a Google algorithm. Whatever we pay attention to, it gives us more of that. So if we're paying attention to debt, we get more of that. If we pay attention to fear, we get more of that. But also, you know, when we pay attention to what we're allowing into our heads, we just get more of the same. Make decisions that are in your best interest because then you can lead by example. But if you're making interest, if you're making decisions that are in everybody else's best interests but are not good for you, you'll end up in the quicksand. Today's guest is Trevor G. Blake, a serial entrepreneur who sold three of his companies for over $300 million. He's the New York Times best-selling author of Three Simple Steps and Secrets to a Successful Startup and the creator of the Transformation Experience, an online program to help you achieve success with balance. Trevor's known for his unconventional approach to entrepreneurship and his emphasis on mindset, intuition, and self-awareness as keys to success. I first came across Trevor two years ago when I was introduced to his concept of the five-hour workday, and I immediately went out to buy his books. He's got an amazing backstory and huge real-world experience, so I'm delighted to have him on the show to share his wisdom. If you enjoy what you hear, please like and subscribe. It would mean the world to me and will help this podcast reach as many people as possible. You don't want to miss this. Enjoy. Trevor, welcome to the show. My first question for you, in life, what's the most important thing you've ever had to pitch for? <laughs> oh, nice and easy start then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're easing you in gently. <laughs> um... Actually, that's a, I, I suppose it's an easy answer for me because the one that sticks out in my mind the most. And, and so typically, I think they're the ones. I mean, I, I agree with the title of your show, Life's a Pitch. We're pitching all the time to our family, our friends, uh, you know, our loved ones at, at work, whatever. But, but the one that sticks out for me was, was probably the earliest when I was aware that I was actually pitching. And that was when I was about 16. And um, at the time, um, I grew up in North Wales in a sort of, a sort of ramshackle existence. My father was had been unemployed my whole teenage years. My mother was dying of cancer. We were actually at least two years in arrears on our rent. The rent was 11 pounds a month. <laughs> and wow. we, were, we were two years in arrears. And I think the, you know, the only reason we weren't evicted is that the people who owned the farm liked my mum, knew she had cancer and couldn't really face the prospect of kicking someone out of her cancer. So, uh, you know, I lived in my school uniform. I had two shirts, two pairs of underpants, one pair of socks, uh, odd matching shoes. So that was that was kind of, where I started from before I had my first pitch. And at 16, I was called into the careers counselor office and uh, it was a, a lady and, uh, you know, she saw my appearance, she looked into my background. And so she determined that my life trajectory is going to be this. And so she gave me an application for an apprentice manager at the chicken packing factory down the road. Um, unbeknownst to her, and I told her this, and then she laughed out loud, I had bigger ambitions than that. So I wanted to be an officer in the Royal Navy and she just laughed because no one from that background, no one with my kind of roots um, was allowed into those elite academies in those days. <clears throat> and her laughing at me did me the best favor ever because it made me mad and determined to prove her wrong. And, and so that was my first pitch to her, but it was sort of private behind a closed door. Next thing I know, the whole school knows about it. So it wasn't so private after all. And then all my friends are laughing at me and they're saluting me in the corridor and doing all that kind of crazy stuff you know and then one day I was in a French uh, class with 39 other kids <laughs> these were big classes it was a, it was a uh, comprehensive school 
and everybody knew and, and everyone stood up and saluted me as I came through the door and, and even the teacher was laughing at me and it made me mad. And I told my parents and they didn't laugh at me, which was nice, but I saw the lack of faith in their eyes, if you like, but, but my mother helped me along. And so I went with my mother to the recruitment office and I pitched to a, a petty officer in the recruitment office. And he said to my mum, he didn't look at me, I was invisible to him. He looked at my mum in the eyes and he said, people like you don't go into this, this world. It's a very special world. You're not good enough. And, and he looked her up and down and kind of dismissed her because she was dying of cancer. And she looked tiny in this huge coat. She was like wearing a sack. That made me even madder. So I demanded, she demanded an application form, filled it in. And somehow I got called up for interviews. And so the pitch continues. This is why it sticks in my mind because the pitch was so many stakeholders. And I had to pitch yeah. in different ways to everybody you know, and, and, and maintain my, um, my cool, if you like, when everyone's laughing mm -hmm. at you and everyone's sort of dismissing you. And I found myself down in Portsmouth, having never been away from home before. So North Wales to Portsmouth via a number of trains and uh, in the Admiralty building. And then I had to pitch people who looked immaculate. They looked 10 foot tall. They're in these amazing uniforms. They've got, you know, the, what we, you know, we call the spaghetti across the chest, all these medals and stuff yeah. like that. And I'm pitching again, you know, and I'm pitching that I'm worthy to get there. And then we're, I'm, I'm given exercises to do, like put these pieces of wood together and get your team across the swimming pool full, but you pretend it's full of sharks. And I'm pitching again and pitching again. And, then, and in the end, you become really confident as a kind of bullshit pitcher. <laughs> and so I got in. I, I, I somehow got in. I got a reserve place and, and they, you know, paid for my schooling. And then two years later, I joined the Royal Navy and I became an officer. But I never forgot it because I realized that I had to, I, I pitched basically for a year mm. between all of those stakeholders in order to get in. I never stopped pitching. And I realized that it's, the pitching is sort of fake it till you make it type of thing. And that stayed with me throughout my career. So, so you know, when I was working in a hospital, I faked that I knew what I was doing. When I was, when I was a sales rep, I pretended I knew what I was doing. And as a sales manager, I pretended I, I know how to manage, you know. And as an entrepreneur now, as a, you know, sort of, um, a band of one type of entrepreneur, you know, I'm faking it all the time. And I realize when you fake it, if you pitch well and you fake that role, eventually you become it. And, it, and that's, that's kind of the story of my life, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really interesting, that idea of kind of railing against and, and finding motivation um, in you know, other people saying it's not possible or, or putting, putting you down. And I, and I think, you know, I, I've had instances of that in, in my life where people have said, you know, you'll, you'll never be an actor or you're not capable of doing this. Um, I remember one teacher telling me in my exams that I would, I needed a seven out of seven um, to, to be able to progress to the next stage. And he said, you'll only ever get a five. And it was like, at that point, I knew I was getting a seven because there, were no, there was no kind of other option. Um, it, in terms of making that imaginative leap to that future self if you like what what were you doing to protect yourself from all of the noise from the other kids taking the piss out of you and and you know the the people in shiny uniforms saying I don't think this is for you I so at the time because this just happened when I was 16 but from the age of about 13 I I was I was a target for bullying in the school, like a lot of people are targets for whatever reason. Mine was strange enough because I was English and this was Wales at a time when the English were really unpopular because they were buying up holiday homes and prices were going up. The, the, um, the media showed that in all of its sensational glory. They showed you know, torching houses and stuff like that. 
And so that sort of fed into the minds of, of my peers at school, whereby, oh, he's English, we're burning his houses, therefore, or the houses of the English, therefore he must be rich, his, his daddy must have bought a house here. You know, they had no idea what my real life was like. And yeah, so you start to get bullied and... Yeah, and so so I was so I hid out in the in the public library uh, just to just to get out of the way really, and I, uh, while I was there, started reading biographies, and I loved them. I I didn't realize I had I'd never been exposed to a biography. I didn't realize how powerful they are, and so I was I just picked them randomly off the shelf, and 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 I found these people through history who had much more adverse circumstances than I thought I had at the time. So that helped take the stress off my shoulders. But they all had this way of coping with the adversity. They, they seem to have. Like a, a like a secret blanket around them that you know made them impervious to insult, impervious to cruelty, and, and even torture. And I thought that was amazing. And so I just I just started to kind of think. I, I learned from the bio. I was young enough to, uh, to be naive enough to say, well, if it works for these people, it must work for me. And so I started to do the things that I read in the biographies. It was consistent through them all. These sort of behaviours. And so I used to imagine as I'm walking, so I'd, I'd stop walking the way to go to go to the school bus. I'd, I'd take a different route so that on that route I could be on my own and I could play in my head the things I read in the biographies. And one of mm. the things I picked up was that they, they, this thing I now talk about, which is I call the bell jar technique, and a lot of self-help people use this technique. And, it, and basically you imagine this like bulletproof glass bell jar coming down from the sky and completely covering you and it makes you impervious to the negative energy of other people. Well, it wasn't called the bell jar technique back in, you know, 1800 or 1900, whichever the biography was, but, but that's what they were doing. And, and then I, yeah. I read a, a self-help book in the library too for, by a guy called Jack Black, a, Scot, a Scottish guy who was, had a great sense of humor, and he called it the bell jar technique. And so I started to walk by myself across the fields and imagine this bell jar covering me. And that enabled me to be, to me, to, it enabled me to keep my confidence high, to be impervious to the insults. But I think to other people watching, it probably made me seem a bit cocky you know, mm. a bit overconfident. Uh, but that didn't matter because I had my bell job. And so I started to get this reputation of being extremely ambitious and extremely confident. And people just eventually just left me alone and to get on with it, waiting for me to fail. And of course, the failing never came. So they're probably very disappointed even to today. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you have, you know, a, a kind of band of brothers at, at that time in your life? Did you have people that that did believe in you or was it i mean you said that your mum was was very supportive but were there were there friends or siblings that kind of thought yes you know you can do this no <laughs> no no nobody really and so uh, i learned to keep quiet about this kind of stuff i was i was fiercely ambitious and i don't know where that came from because you know as the same my father was you know hardly ever employed in my whole life um my mother was by far the biggest crutch that i could lean on um and and I didn't understand why at the time, but she believed in me in a way that I didn't really have a right to deserve. And I couldn't quite figure it out. And then later on in life, just before she died, she re revealed the secret, if you like. And that was that I had a different biological father and, and he was very successful. And, and so she saw that the way I talked and the way I thought, probably my DNA was more on his side um, than it was on, on my family's side. And she saw that. And she, she tried to very carefully and gently nurture that private, almost privately. We, we, we used to have these um, secret conversations in a closet on the top of the stairs. And I didn't know why. I just, I don't know why I was, at the time, I didn't know why I was privy to this inside feeling of my, of my mother. She would show me newspaper cuttings of this person who, and she, she, he died in a plane crash. His whole family were wiped out in a plane crash. His plane, he was a pilot too. And, um, 
And I remember one time she she, she whispered to me uh, that in this secret place, um, see, I made the right choice because if I'd gone with him, you'd all be dead now. And I thought, pardon? And then it started to sink in. And then as I got older, I started to put pieces together. A couple of people gave me hints, a couple of her friends. And then she told me the truth before she died, which I kept secret all the way through to uh, just two years ago. But I finally revealed to my siblings. I didn't go down very well, but I finally revealed the, the truth. Um, and so she always believed in me because she saw something different than anyone else in the family saw. In school, no, nobody. Everybody laughed. They thought it was a big, the biggest joke ever because in those days... This is a you know this, uh, late seventies, early eighties. Nobody from that background ever got into the elite schools of, of Dartmouth, Sandhurst, or or, or um, Cranwell. You know, no no one did. And so so when it when it finally happened and I finally got in, the the military then posted the, made an announcement in the Daily Telegraph. Well, no one from my side of the family would ever be in the Daily Telegraph. Yeah. But there I am in the Daily Telegraph, and then all of a sudden, everyone wants to know me. <laughs> now suddenly I'm a celebrity and everyone wants to hang out with the cool kid who got into drama. It was such a such an early lesson in the in the fragility of life, really. Yeah. Uh, you you talk in three simple steps about um that kind of time in your life and, and you talk about being in in nature quite a lot and I know that that's one of the things that you really kind of recommend to the, the, the people that you uh, work with. Um how 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 did you discover that power? Was that something that you were you know always connected with, or, or is there a moment that sticks in your mind where you kind of think, ah, oh, yeah, this is something I need to do more of? Uh, well, there's there's what yeah, it's a good question, Dominic, and there's one particular moment that sticks in my mind that might freak out your listeners a little bit, but it was the day an animal spoke Go to me. Uh, okay. <laughs> I know. Well, it shocked the hell out of me at the time too. I was only probably. <laughs> I was only probably seven or eight, I think, when it happened. So, so I grew up in Liverpool. So I was born in Liverpool, and it really was. We lived above a shop next to a railway line, so and it was very dusty concrete upbringing. And I don't ever remember seeing a tree, to be honest with you. And I must have, but I don't ever remember noticing a tree or grass or anything like that. And then we were evicted, you know, in the back of the van, three o'clock in the morning. Let's get out of here. And we, that's when how we lived in North Wales, escaping the creditors, if you like. And so I slept through most of that. You know, I, I packed the back, took my belongings to the back of the van, but I was only a little kid, so six or seven years old, and fell asleep in the van as we drove out to North Wales. So when I woke up, you know, it was bright and sunny, and we're in the countryside, and it was, it was like getting slapped in the face for me. I'd never seen it. I'd never, there was a forest, the came out forest, you know, and I'd never seen a forest before, of course. not. We didn't have a TV, so it's not like I'd seen these things on TV. And then there was these massive giant dogs that turned out to be cows. And I, I just I'd never seen a cow before. I didn't know what a cow looked like, and uh, it was just mind blowing to me. And and what happened was we we moved in, and this must have happened in Liverpool, but I didn't notice it. There was no schedule for me, so so the only instruction I got first thing in the morning was make sure you're back by five o'clock for your tea for your dinner. And, and then the front door opened. Well, that probably happened in Liverpool, but when the front door opened, I'm surrounded by people and cars and trains and, and, and you know, steam trains in those days and and, and, a, and a lot of noise, you know, and, and walking up and down the street with shops and everything, the high street. So I never never really paid attention, but but here I am again, let out at nine o'clock in the morning and there's nothing, there's no one. It was just complete empty space, like Chronicles of Narnia. It was like going through the back of the wardrobe and lying the witch in the wardrobe. And just as far as the eye could see, it was just pastures and hills and stunning, absolutely beautiful animals everywhere. The noise of animals was the first thing I noticed. And 
I just went and wandered and, and I, and I walked through the back of the house up a hill. And I remember it was somebody little, little at this time. And, and you know, when you're walking up and you see the brow of a hill, you don't know what's beyond it. So my mind was going crazy. I'm thinking things like cowboys and Indians or something, or aliens or something. And I walk up there and as I finally get up to the top and I can see over the brow, there's a herd of cows staring back at me, Ayrshire cows. I've never seen anything like it in my whole life. And I wasn't scared. And I walked straight through them with that. This is a stupid thing to do. <laughs> I was just fascinated by it. And then a few things happened. And the farmers used to catch and trap rabbits. And I didn't like that. And I saw that how they, because they, it was cruel the way they did it. They, they would find the burrows and they would put a piece of string, tie a half granny knot in a piece of string. So as a rabbit came out, it would choke to death. Horrible ways to do it. And so what happened was, it really upset me. And so I took, I took on the crusade of snipping all those pieces of string or around the fields all the way around. They knew it was one of the Blake family who was doing it, but they never, ever proved who it was. That's your way. I got interrogated at seven or eight years old by the farmers, you know, standing up against their big white Land Rover. And uh, they were looking for a, for a pen knife, but I had it in my shoe and they didn't think to look for it, to check my pockets. And uh, so I played it. So, so I was doing what I thought was an honorable thing, letting these, these rabbits go or not get caught. And, uh, of course, they're starving, the farmers, but that, that's okay. Um, and then this is the weird bit. So then one day I'm walking in the same place and a hare came out. And hares are usually, you know, they're big and they run like crazy. And now I know because I've studied them, you know, they're, they're, they're part of, of, of Irish folklore, part of, here, part of many fables. They're supposed to be magical creatures. And I feel that they are because this hare spoke to me. And the hare showed me a picture and it showed me, it showed me a picture of me cutting the strings of the burrows and the hare thanked me for that and then gave me some information and I didn't know what to do I did you know because I'm, I'm young enough to believe that this is happening but also old enough to think have I just gone mad you know is, is, is there something in the air that's made me go crazy and I went home and I told my parents and they didn't laugh at me and they didn't say I was crazy or tell me to shut up or don't be silly don't you know it's all in your head they believed me and, and from that point forward, they encouraged it. And then I found out that actually, you know, in their families, in both their family lines, they'd had somebody, a grandmother in one case, a, a great aunt in another case, who had this talent for communicating with animals and for also, um, you know, being a little fey, as we call, as they call it in the Northeast. And my wife was from the Northeast and she was bay too, Claire Wood and Claire Wayne. And so they encouraged it. And so because they didn't make it seem silly, I kept doing it. And so I started to communicate with animals. And then that's how, that's how I ended up understanding that the more time we spend in nature, the more we're able to connect through nature to this other realm. And I've kept that going throughout my, my whole life um, in different aspects. So, so you moved from Wales to join the, the, the Royal Navy. That, that connection with nature presumably shifts quite dramatically. I mean, okay, you might be out, out at sea, but there's, you know, you're not, you, you're not being able to converse with nature in the same way and I'm not necessarily meaning having conversations with animals but just being connected in that way did that did that change your kind of vibration in in terms of the way that you were that you were showing up no actually because I was at that point was so used to the connection and so dependent upon it that I could find it anywhere and you can but you have to seek it out. So, so the uh, Royal Navy Academy is in Dartmouth. It's on the south coast of England. It's stunningly beautiful up on a hill. The countryside around there is magnificent. So it was very easy for me to keep regular connection going. And you have to. It's like, it's like uh, you know, keeping a battery charged. You, you, so I, I feel you have to. I, I, 
uh, my intuition is really important to me as a businessman. And so if I stop connecting through nature, my intuition suffers and my decision-making goes down the toilet, basically. And the same thing happened. So I, so I, was, I, I was able to connect really easily within the academy. At sea, it was much easier because, because you were surrounded by this absolute ocean of energy, literally. You are, you know, on, on your ship, my first, my first ship was um, an assault carrier, assault, assault ship, and uh, uh, HMS Fearless. And, and so uh, obviously it doesn't exist anymore. But it's a big ship, and it's, and, it's, and it's all metal, and it's all mechanics, and it's all weapons, and all the rest of it. But all you have to do is look up. And, and then you can take your head above the ship, and if you were to fly up to, say, 30,000 feet and look down, the, the ship would look so tiny on the ocean yeah. that it's nothing. And so I used to do that, and so I could, so I had, you know, I, I had to develop the ability to kind of almost. This is going to sound even weirder. I had developed the ability to fly mentally, and so so I could look at a, uh, uh, some birds, and I could fly with the birds. I could I could uh, look over to the horizon, and I could fly to the horizon and come back. And I've always been able to do that since this first opening of whatever portal it was that that hair on for me. Um, and so at sea, it was even easier because it's just a, just this you, you tap into this huge uh battery which is the ocean and and, and you know most people I, most of my colleagues wouldn't do it but I, I came across people all the time who were doing something similar but never talked about it and then it would come out would have too much to drink in a port somewhere and it would come out and i find out that i wasn't alone in this that a lot of people were drawn to the two life at sea specifically because yeah. that's the only place they ever felt comfortable that's the only place they felt connected and when they would go home on leave, they had all these relationship problems and all these difficulties because they felt trapped in in the sort of urbanization uh, lifestyle, and they couldn't wait yeah. to go back to sea. You know, it's really interesting. One of my favourite jobs as a director was uh, directing shows on board the the QM2 cruise ship, um, mm. and she used to go transatlantic, and I used to have to go on board to to do the tech and dress rehearsals for the show. Um, and one of my favorite things to do was once you'd kind of got everything done in the evening was just to go to the back of the ship and just stand on the back of the ship and watch this sea of nothingness. You know, you've got the, you've got the, the turbulence that the, the ship had uh, chopped up behind it, but essentially there was nothing. And then if you really started to key in, you'd find that there wasn't actually nothing, that there were dolphins following the the ship and there were birds in the sky and that there was a real kind of um tranquility and and peace there um and yeah i i, I still vividly remember those days of, of being in that space and 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 how kind of energizing it was so i, I can completely understand that well i had it fairly uh, last year actually so so jess and i went on a a cruise we we decided that we should do things that we've not done before and i've, I've never wanted to go on a cruise because I think I'm a, I was a little, you know, ego was too big. I used to be in the Navy. Why would I go on a cruise type of thing? Um, but we decided to go on, go, go on a cruise, and, and uh, it was one of these pampered cruises. It was absolutely delightful. We're, we're going on bigger, uh, you know, farther afield on, on, on the same um, company uh, next year and the year after. But um, a storm came in. And, and even the staff had never been in a storm before, and they were terrified. And they, they talked about it for two days afterwards. I have never been happier than during that storm. And, and yeah. it's funny because Jess sneakily took a picture of me. I don't like having my picture taken. And she sneakily took a picture of me, and, and, and I'd see what she, I, I get what she means when she shows it to me. She says, I've never seen anyone look so peaceful and so connected. And so I'm actually, I'm actually in a, 
in a bed gown that's uh, you know like a house coat that, that was provided for the for the cabin and i'm sat on the veranda resisting doing this and thing yeah. and i've got the biggest smile on my face and just <laughs> loving it you know so so it is that it is you know when you when you're alone with this this power this energy whatever it is it's 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 just a beautiful thing so you you come out with the navy and you go into kind of normal life to be to be perfectly honest you you you're working in hospitals you're you, you're kind of taking on sales roles um what was the, what was the impetus to become the entrepreneur that you are today because i hope you don't mind me saying this but 43 in in most entrepreneurial stories is a is a little bit late um for for starting out so what what kind of made you go you know what now's the time well, I always wanted to do it. I mean, I left the Navy because I fell in love. So I'll be clear about that. And then I became a stalker until she ran out of excuses. And then, <laughs> and then she had no choice but to marry me because I said, ah, I've heard that one before. That's not true. You've got to marry me there. Um, and, then, and so we couldn't, we were back, we, we'd been in the health service, you know, she, she, she was an oncology nurse. I was a, a radiotherapy guy. And um, we couldn't afford the mortgage. We were about to lose the house, basically. And so I decided to become a sales rep because it, was, it would double my salary overnight. I didn't think I could sell a rope to a drowning man. It's just not my nature. It's not my style. It, it's, I'm, I'm very intimidated in that sort of world. But I turned out to be really good at it, partly because I didn't know what I was doing. So instead of talking, I should have listened. And, I, and, and, and that appears to be the secret of sales, right? So um, now, so I found that out. And so I realized I'm pretty good on this in the business side of things, sales and marketing, but I only, I only know sales and marketing. And I, you know, I, I then became a sales manager, got promoted very quickly, went up the ranks, fast track thing. In the Royal Navy, I'd been really intimidated by people of, of the rank of captain and above. They seemed right. so confident and so with it, so in tune, you know? And so I took the same kind of mentality into the corporate world. And I was really intimidated by people who were like at managing director level. I never knew what to say to them. They would say hello, Trevor, and I go, I could never, could never sort of say what I really, I, I couldn't think I didn't say to them. I was so intimidated by them. And then I got this fast track career and I ended up at the top very, very quickly. And I realized they're all making it up. Yeah, Everyone's making it up. No one knows what they're doing. They're Everyone's going hospital syndrome. It's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you'd recognize it in acting. They're, they're brilliant actors. And I thought, wow. And that's when I thought, well, I can just, I can be them. And so I started to think about, well, I, I actually don't like the corporate world particularly. It's a, so it's a lot of waste. There's a lot of corporate men, uh, madness, you know, all the meeting mentality and all like the, the insanity of meeting rooms and stuff like that. So I thought I'd like to, I'd like to be my own boss. But then I started to look at my life and say, okay, what am I good at? And to, to be honest, I wasn't very good at anything. Um, and even today, I'm not allowed anywhere near a toolbox. I mean, I'm terrible at DIY and that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I, it was really, really um, eye-opening to me that actually I don't have any skills. I hadn't been in the Navy long enough to pick up anything that could be transferred to the, to the civilian world. I bounced through a hospital with, and there was really only, only the ability to manage a small group of people was what I had learned. And then sales and marketing, anyone can do those things. I know sales and marketers don't like to hear me say that because they've got they'd say, well, no, no, it's a skill. Nah, it's not. Anyone can do it. Absolutely anybody. And um and so so it was a bit I honestly, so that's why I took so long to figure out what it is I'm gonna do. And and how it came about was I was working with a company and I fell out with my boss, who was the CEO of that company, we had a blazing row one night. And that's never smart. You're never gonna win an argument with the boss. And so we agreed to a six-month severance. And so, so as I was walking away from there, 
I was just hit by this amazing idea and I thought, I'll do it and I'll prove him wrong. And so that's how it started. And I and, and that's one of the bits of advice I try to give to, to people who would like to become an entrepreneur is instead of instead of trying to figure out what you're good at or what you love to do, because you can you can end up loving being an entrepreneur, but instead of trying to figure out what you're good at and what you can contribute, find things to fix. And so mm-hmm. look around you and whatever gets under your skin a bit, you say, okay, I wish someone had a solution to that. And then you find there's no solution, so fix it yourself. You become an entrepreneur by default. And, and in all the biographies that, that, that I, I read when I was younger, that's exactly what happened to, to those people. They fix things. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing they know, they're a, kind of an entrepreneur. And then history looks back at this brilliant entrepreneur, this fantastic mind, this, this you know, like, like Madam C.J. Walker, you know, this, this lightning rod that, that uh, disrupted the world. But she just went, all she did was fix something. She, she, her hair had fallen out. She went to hair tonic. None of them worked. She made her own hair tonic in the kitchen. It worked. And she sold it door to door and became famous that way. Became America's first um, female millionaire, which is, which is amazing. And she had all, everything stacked against her, born to slaves, a, a black woman in a, in a white world, a woman in a man's world, all of these things. And yet she became a millionaireess. I, I was really blown away by her story. And, uh, and, and so, she, but she was a fixer, just like Richard Branson is a fixer. You know, he never, he never set out to be an entrepreneur. He got annoyed at how much price gouging the record companies were doing and the students couldn't afford the record. So he decided to fix it. And, and you know, his, his life is iconic now, but only because he's, he's actually a fixer. You, you said that you weren't a natural salesperson, but you've used one of the skills that you know many salespeople use on on this podcast which is brilliant storytelling um is that is that something that you kind of had to develop or was that something that was just yeah a natural talent no i think we're all storytellers i i I think life is a story and then within that one overarching story is all these little stories and we're all, I think we're all storytellers. And as an entrepreneur, that's really what I do is tell stories. I mean, I'm, one of my companies is a, a cancer drug research and development company, and it's very data-driven and everyone's interested. Show me the data, show me the data. Well, instead of showing the data, I tell a story about a patient that did really well on the drug in a clinical trial. And it stops everybody in the tracks and it, it reminds them of why we're doing this in the first place. It's not mm-hmm. about the data, it's about lives. And so I, I just think storytelling is is... It's just a natural thing. I may, I may have developed a little bit of ability to do it when I was younger because um, we, were, we were often without electricity because we couldn't have, we didn't pay the bills. And so um, the the uh, the scheme was my dad's scheme was that we all literally we all hide behind the sofa except for my sister who was eighteen months older than me and she goes and answers the front door and if there's no adult answering the front door they can't enter. And this is how we managed to keep electricity on, but it didn't always work because all they had to do is, is go into the window and see us come, come up, you know, as Janet come, and my sister Janet came back into the room, we all stand up from behind the sofa, caught, right? Caught red-handed. And so quite often we were out of electricity and, and it was dark, uh, no, 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 um, no street lamps or anything in that, in that area. And so we would tell stories. So my, my mom would start it off and she'd say, okay, I'll start. And then she'd tell, she'd make up a story and then you didn't know who was going to be picked next. It didn't go around, you couldn't sort of think ahead. And she could point to me and said, now carry on. And so I would carry on the story. And they were very funny because she might start a story about 
let's say a rabbit, okay, or a hare or something. And then I carry on and I, I take it into science fiction. And then I pick somebody out after five minutes and they take it into horror or something. And we did that at night time. And it was just wonderful. It was just, they were my favorite nights. I actually look forward to not have electricity because that, we actually talked. And, and in the days when we had a little bit of money and the electricity came on, the TV went on. And as soon yeah. as the TV went on, there was no conversation. Mm. Just everybody staring at this thing, you know. And, and, um, I used to go out, so I get up and go and walk in the fields in the dark, and uh, uh, and you know hope hope we'd get our electricity cut off again, so we can all behave like a family. Because because we really only behave like a family when we were forced to communicate, when we were forced to tell stories. Mm. It's re it's really interesting that idea of you know the the power of creating and not consuming. So you know creating your own stories rather than sitting there glued into the the TV, and I and I think as I look at, you know, the clients that I work with and, and, you know, the people that I know, the most successful ones are normally the ones that are out there in the world creating something rather than the ones that are sitting there just continually um, consuming other people's narratives. Um, it, in terms of that kind of first idea, and uh, and it's interesting, again, that you that one of the catalysts for that first business was proving uh, proving this guy wrong. Um, what what was what what was the pitch like? How how did you you know start with with nothing and build a business? Well, I got rejected probably fifty times trying to tell trying to tell the story. So so basically, uh, so his name John. So 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 John's company. I called it John's company. He was the one of the founders and, and the CEO, and. Um, it was publicly traded to share price of about $7, but it wasn't, we didn't have much revenue. My job was to bring in revenue to, to decide, okay, which of these scientific projects are going to make it. And out of, I think there were 14 projects and I, I could only find four or five that would actually, that would actually bring in revenue, which was a shock to the company. But, but he, you know, he took that on the chin and we did go after those four or five products, but one of them was very, very small. And it, it was, it was to treat an incredibly rare disease that some, and there's only about 300 kids in the world that, that, that are in this situation. They're born without the enzyme that allows them to convert complex sugar, which is the sugar we put in our mouths, into simple sugar, which is the sugar our body can, can digest. Such a simple disease, if for want of a, a better word. But some, some, some kids, unfortunately, are born without that. And because it's so rare, it's very hard to diagnose. And so what happens is they end up uh, failing to thrive. So they, they have this terrible watery diarrhea 20 times a day. The mother gets blamed for being a bad mother. You know, I've seen all kinds of horror or heard all kinds of horror stories about what goes on for the for the family around this situation. But basically, ultimately, the baby fails to thrive and can die. And the solution was so simple; it was actually a solution. It was a, a sweet, sticky solution. It's exactly the same sticky solution that's inside candies that are hard candies with a soft center. That soft center is the secret sauce to save these babies' lives. And I knew that, and everyone knew that in the company. But because it was such a very, very small such a small market, the company, they had a solution, but they didn't advertise. So basically no one knew it existed. So, so mm -hmm. and this really used to really frustrate me. And I came up with plan after plan after plan, marketing plan that I presented to him and others. And because it was me presenting and it couldn't, hadn't come from them, you know, it's, it's never going to, it's never going to make it. This is typical corporate America. Uh, if the boss has an idea that goes out into the world, if, uh, you know, someone down the ranks, down the, down the totem pole has an idea, it usually gets crushed. And, um, I know I'm generalizing, but that's what been my experience. And so that's that's when I, so that's what we had the roundabout, and eventually I went. I, I decided to do it myself. So I had this great idea, 
I'll take the rights for this from that company, from John, and I'll go off and I'll do it this way. And that way I can get, I know how to get word out into the world without spending a huge amount of money. But then I started, to, I needed, I needed uh, cash to do that. So I started to talk to investors, having never done that before in my life. And they were all very nice in the way that they said no. Polite. <laughs> they made me feel really good about getting turned down. <laughs> I spent eighteen months doing this and, and and not figuring out what it was that I was I was I was messing around on messing messing up on, and um, and then eventually you know it's all about so so I was working in so that's when I really discovered the power of intention setting because I was I was chasing money and not letting it come to me. And so I started to imagine what my life will look like and what the company will look like as a successful company and and, and what, what I will do when the money's in my hands. Instead of saying, I need X, I say, okay, I've got X. This is what I'm going to do. And so I started to change my pitch entirely from, you know, please, Mr. Nice Venture Capitalist, give me some money so I can, I can prove myself. Because they would look at me and say, but you've never been a CEO. You don't have the experience. We'd love to help you, but sorry. And I yeah. changed my pitch from, you'd be lucky to be part of this. So I completely changed the role in my head. And then I started to get some success. And, and, and one uh, group of, of um, investors who I'm still friends with and still in touch with, uh, they really wanted to invest, but they said, we can't because we have these rules and it's too early. Go see this guy. And then that guy said, go see this guy. And that, that guy, the third guy, only had lunch with me because he'd been asked by this guy. And he said to me later, I came to lunch with you intending to pat you on the head and tell you to go and get another day job. But I was blown away by your passion. And once I felt that passion, I, I, I had to make this happen for you. So he became the first investor, very small, about 300,000. But he brought in others and I eventually raised uh, 2.1 million. And then I was ready to go and, and um, never looked back, basically. I mean, six years later, I sold that company for 105.5 million. So it's a lovely success story. I can't claim any skill in that. I just... You know, I just did what needed to be done. Basically, I became a conduit for the, for for doing the right. My mother always used to say, "Do the right thing, no matter how much it costs you. Do the right thing." And this was the right thing. You know, saving babies' lives is the right thing to do. And there's there's always going to be a solution. And I found I found that people once they had, once they understood the mission of this, and that it wasn't about making the money, and it wasn't about Trevor Blake being a, a brilliant entrepreneur and anything like that. It was about saving babies' lives. Then then. It basically made itself. The company made itself. People said, "Yeah, we can do that. We know who could do this for you." And it, and it became a. It, it was such a pleasure to build that company. It was such a joy. In in those early days, you know, you you hear the classic kind of entrepreneur stories of of people sleeping on the couch or you know in the in the boot of the car or whatever it might be. Like how how did you make ends meet? Because uh, you know, lots of lots of people are scared of making that first leap into entrepreneurhood because you take away the safety net the salary doesn't land in your bank every every week so you know how, how did you survive those those early months and uh, and weeks I, I did it by working theoretically working two days a week for a, a biotech company my job was to in license promising development ideas but but in reality the guy that hired me to do that so, so how this worked out was, you know, it's, it's like everything. I'm, I'm holding the dream in my head. I'm playing yeah. my little movie in my head of success. But the money's running out pretty quickly. We sold our house. The, the equity we made went, was probably disappeared in probably about six months. And, I, and, I, and I'm starting to panic. And this, you can't help it. You can't avoid, you know, that, that churning in your stomach that says, geez, I could be homeless here at this rate. 
Um, and then, of course, I, but, I, but you have to keep the vision. And so I it's kept the vision. again, isn't it? You know, that's really... Yeah, you've, you've, got to keep, you've got to keep the vision of it already being successful, mm. even though it seems to be falling apart around you. And, and then suddenly the phone went in, in the house, and it's this guy I'd never met before. Um, he's to this day can't, can't remember how he got my number or who said, you know, call this guy. He's in Seattle and I'm in Florida. And, and he said, uh, we've got a job. I, I hear you're, you're, you're on the market and we've got a job for you. And I said, oh, his name's Paul. So, so thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. Thanks for thinking of me. But I'm starting my own company. And he said, oh, that's not an issue. He said, send me the business plan. So I, so I didn't, hadn't written the business plan yet. So I you know, did a business plan in about two hours. Uh, I sent him the business plan, called back, and he says, well, I've got a solution for you, but you're going to have to move here. And I kind of laughed. I'm not moving from Florida to Seattle. Florida's beautiful, sunny weather. I'm on the, on the water, living the dream. And Seattle, I heard it rains every day. It doesn't, but that's what I heard. And, and, um, but I, I went up anyway. So I got on a plane, went to, uh, to Seattle, sat down with him, really liked him, liked the vision that they had. And he said, look, work for me for a few days a week. And you can use the office for your business. So you can, you can build your business here. But do this job for me because I don't have anybody. And what I realized he really wanted was some, uh, uh, he was surrounded by scientists that didn't have business experience. What he wanted was a more mature um, executive team. And so I became part of his executive team with no, with no job to do, basically. I was, I was given the title of vice president of commercial development. They didn't have anything in the clinic yet. <laughs> There's nothing to commercialize. And I, so I saw through the plan and I thought, it's smart. I thought, yeah, this guy's, you know, Paul's really, he is a really, really smart guy. Uh, oncologist and a lawyer in the, in the same brain, and um, and so we moved up to Seattle. Um, my wife never Lynn never hesitated. She just said, "When are we going?" So now, so off we went. Went to Seattle, and it turned out that I didn't have a job. So so, and I don't work well in the corporate environment. So I would I would come into work about half past eight in the morning with a little box of sandwiches, and I'd eaten my sandwiches by nine fifteen, and and was ready to go home again because I, I had nothing to do. And so, so I, I admitted this to Paul. I said, Paul, I'm, I'm bored. I've got nothing to do. And I feel like I'm stealing your money here. And he said, no, you're really making a difference because you're bringing in something we don't have. It's the energy. You've talked about energy without saying energy. So I just did that. And so, so I, I sort of moonlighted. I ended up cutting it down to two days a week, which really was four hours a week because I'd work two hours in the morning and then build Qual Medical in the same space, you know, I could use all I could use all the equipment, all the office equipment. So, so it was a really fantastic solution. And um, I, I, you know, I know the reason you're asking that question is it, it can be terrifying to make to, to make a, a jump and then say, okay, now I'm an entrepreneur, but I don't know where the money's going to come from. And I don't recommend that to anybody because mm. because it's too much stress. And you yeah. want to focus on the vision of success. You don't want to be focusing on how am I going to pay the bills. And so I recommend that people find a way to finance themselves for at least two years, whatever that, you know, you're going to eat minimum. You're not going to go out to a restaurant every night like you may have done before. You probably won't, you know, uh, take a holiday that year or anything like that. Um, but you can, you can cut the cloth to, to those means quite, uh, quite easily. We, we all, you know, in the, in the West in particular, we're, we don't need half the things that we consume anyway. And, and um, so you can cut the cloth quite easily, sell your house, go lease instead, um, use the equity, whatever it may be, make sure you've got this little cushion because the opportunity to get big fast today is, is one that, you know, is, is a fantastic opportunity. When I first started, 
companies, you know, the average age of a company was about 70 years, seven zero years. Now it's down to 15. So, so right. we live in a world where get big fast is, is pretty much the business model. And mm-hmm. to do that, you really need to survive two years. So make sure you've got enough capital or a part-time job where you can you can say, okay, for two years, we're going to be really frugal, but it'll be worth it. And, and that takes all the stress and the pressure away. I, I would never recommend to anybody to start a company with nothing because my dad did it 15 times. Yeah. and failed all 15 times yeah i i think it's 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 almost impossible to because because you 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 can't control your mindset or it's so difficult to control your mindset when you're in that kind of level of of scarcity i think it's interesting that you talk there about the you know, keep keeping that positive vision of 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 what it was like to to you know have the business and to be um commercially successful with the business and i know you talk a lot about uh, the your mini mind movie technique and and this idea of you know really emotionally associating with that future vision of success um one of the guests on the podcast recently was Anna Hemmings who's a six-time world champion uh, marathon kayaker and she was talking in a very similar way about that idea of you know visualizing herself crossing the finish line and exactly how every every stroke felt um will you talk to me a little bit about you know the the ingredients that you think go into um preparing that that mind movie so so the one of the techniques that I that I try to teach is is window shopping, which is something that sounds very easy, but it's actually quite can be intimidating and difficult to do. So 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 the kayaker, you know, she knows what it's like to sit in the kayak. She knows what it's like to be on the water. She knows what it's like to be exhausted. She knows what it's like to cross the finishing line. So all that's in her head because she's already experienced it. Now what she's doing is projecting being number one. And so 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 she doesn't have to imagine what it's like to be in a kayak or imagine what the cold water feels like like that because she she knows that. And so so with Imagining success in a business setting. So let's say someone who's listening to this and just starting out and says, I'm starting my own company. It's hard to imagine the success of that company just by using your brain. Um, so what you have to do is go on a, a, a journey or a crusade of window shopping. So, so the, the way to do it is to put yourself in situations where you know you're going to be when you're successful. And use all five senses. So you smell it and touch it, taste it. And, and so I would, put my, I would take myself to... Um, places where CEOs gather and places where, where top manufacturers gather and places where the biggest pharmaceutical companies gather and share best practices and show off and do all the things that they do in these uh, crazily expensive meetings. I would just pay my registra- registration fee. I would pretend I was a doctor. No one ever questioned that. So I'd be Dr. Trevor Blake and I would walk around and everyone would talk to me and say, oh, uh, Dr. Blake, pleased to meet you. Where, you where, where do you practice? You know, And I would make up a story and everything. But what I was doing is getting the feeling of being in that environment feeling like i belong and you never forget it and so then you add that to the movie and then i used, i would think okay when i'm successful you know i'm gonna go to a three mission star restaurant and so i actually went you know so i would spend the money off we went that's two thousand dollars i think it cost us go to a three mission star restaurant and get that feeling and then you know for a birthday or something instead of people buying gifts or something i would say put all your money together and get me a 300 hundred dollar bottle of wine and I would, because that's what I'm going to drink when I'm successful. And and I would, I would, so I'd have all of these sens- sensory inputs into my brain. And the reason I was doing that, I learned this from the biographies. And the reason I'm, you're doing it is that at the back of your, in your brainstem here, you have a group of neurons called a reticular activation system. And they, only us and reptiles have them. And they keep us in a loop. It's a bit like a Google algorithm. Whatever we pay attention to, it gives us more of that. 
So if we're paying attention to debt, we get more of that. If we pay attention to fear, we get more of that. But also, you know, when we pay attention to what we're allowing into our heads, we just get more of the same. A, a, a clear example of, of how it works would be, you know, you, you, your best friend has just bought a car that you've never even heard of, a make that you've never even heard of, and is so excited, you go along to see it, and then the next day you see the same car, the same colour, everywhere. It's like they drop down in parachutes at night, you know. And and so that's just because your tick activation system is filtering out everything that it thinks is unimportant to you. So when you take yourself to the places you will go when you're successful, your tick activation system takes over and does all the work for you. And it makes, I know it sounds very woo-woo, but it makes things happen that uh, propel you more, you know, quickly towards that lifestyle. And then when you get to that lifestyle, you're not intimidated by it. You almost yeah. accept it. You're expecting it, and um, uh, it's, it's it's really fascinating because there's there's that kind of sensory experience has so many parallels with the, with the process that we're familiar to to lots of actors in in terms of creating the character. And so you, you we used to do these things called character object exercises, and it was part of preparing to to play the role. Um, and so rather than work on the script, you would. Uh, in in the rehearsal room, you would bring together all of the things that you needed to create a little scene that was um, you know, related to the play, but nothing that was in the play or the or the movie. And you would spend time, uh, you know, an hour in the life of the character being watched by everyone else. But if the character was drinking wine, then you'd be sitting there drinking wine. If it, if you needed to have a, you know, a cashmere jumper on, then you'd wear the cashmere. And it just completely transformed the way that you felt and then made it so much easier to step into that character's shoes. And I think there are, there are wonderful parallels there between, uh, you know, art and life. Um, as, uh, yeah, I mean, as, you, as you, used, you used the phrase, the, the, the same phrase that I, I used to teach people how to do the mini mind movie. It's a day in the life of your future self. It's a day yeah. in your life. And, and, and once you experience the day in the life, it's in the, in the brain. And I agree with you. You become sort of transformed. And, and uh, every now and again, I have to look in the mirror and remind myself, oh, actually, I'm not yet a billionaire. I've been practicing being a billionaire, but oh, I'm not quite there yet. So I do have to actually do some work. And, you know, because I find myself, it's, I, I'm a bit of a lazy guy. It's, I find it much easier to live in my head than live in the big world. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about that that kind of, you know, the, the moment of payout and, and being being the billionaire, you, you've obviously sold companies for hundreds of millions and 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 there must be with that kind of level of of vision and that level of success there there must be a kind of strange moment when you know what you've imagined becomes reality um when when that happened when the you know the checker arrives or the the money's wired into your bank account did you have that kind of like oh i've got nothing to do today or are you the sort of person that was already on to the the next thing i I've, I've always thought it was important to allow yourself a little time to celebrate and, and like you would like in certain situations you have to allow yourself time to grieve my, my wife my um, late wife died in uh, 2020 and I, I i allowed myself six months to grieve i know that sounds very strange to a lot of people because a lot of people say well my partner died 10 years ago. I'm still not over it. I'm not saying I'm over it, but I, 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 I had to take the time out to go through that process. That's essentially, I think it's the same when, when, when what you've dreamt about comes into your life, you've got to celebrate that. And how you celebrate has to be very personal. And so what I found, so, so, so in my mini mind movie for my first company, I think my first company is the best story because it's from nothing to something. After that, I could afford to build companies. 
even though I still bring in investors. So, so a couple of things to talk about. One, one is, one is, you know, what's important to you. So, I imagine celebrating the successful sale of my uh, first company, even as I was starting it. And and a lot of people say, okay, well, you know, what do you do? Buy a private island? Did you go in a private plane? I think no. I wanted to spend twenty four hours in my pajamas. <laughs> That's how I wanted to celebrate. And I did, and my wife did it with me. We, we, we actually were flying to Seattle. We had an apartment up in Seattle, and I didn't know the deal had gone through while I was on the plane because in those days you couldn't use your phone. And yeah. um, about 2010, and um, uh, when we landed, you know, I switched my phone on. There's a text and it says, "Congratulations, you, you know, deal's gone through," and there's the number, you know. And I'm in, and I was in first class, but I was still standing up in the aisle, and I. Sh- I, sh- I didn't re- react to it, and I showed the the picture, the the, the text to Lynn, who's behind me, and she she went ah, <laughs> and everyone went, what, what's wrong? What's happened? You know, and she just and she just she, I said, let's get off the plane, you know, and and so we we um we used to rent a car from the airport, and then we went to our, our apartment in Bellevue, and we got into our pajamas, and we spent twenty four hours in pajamas, and and we went down below us was a very very fancy Italian restaurant, and we went to the Italian restaurant in our pajamas and slippers, and no one. <laughs> No one said a word. No one questioned us. They just won you money. I suppose. No one said yeah. a thing. So it was just delightful. So for me, that was how I went to celebrate and I did it and it felt great. Um, and I allowed myself a little bit of time before deciding, okay, I'm going to go again. I realized I had a formula, a really good business model that hadn't been done before. And it's like a plug and play. And it would have been a crime not to go again and waste mm-hmm. that learning, that knowledge. So, so I went again fairly quickly on the on the next one. I'm, I'm on number seven now, but on the on the next company and all the rest of it. Um, but it, it really is important to let yourself have a moment of celebration because that also goes into the risk activation system. And the RAS says, oh, my host really likes this feeling. I'm going to get it for it more often. So that's the thing. The other thing I want to talk about is numbers. So so people get very uncomfortable talking about money and numbers because it's, especially us Brits, right? It's crass for us to talk about. And, and so I've had to learn to get used to talking about money as energy. Not as a thing to grab, it's not Hogwarts and Vault or anything, but, but money is energy. So we talk in terms of millions and billions. It doesn't mean a thing. As any um, successful entrepreneur will tell you, if a company sells for a billion, you can guarantee one thing. The entrepreneur doesn't get that, yeah. okay, because we get diluted as we go. So the average, there's a study that's done every year, and I, I, I contribute to it with information about my companies and everything. Um, the Tufts does it. And so, so the average equity that a founder CEO is left with at exit is under 10%. Right. Because you get diluted all the way around. Even Google, uh, Larry Page and, and Brin together, they only have 13% of Google. Um, Microsoft, um, uh, Gates only has, I think Gates has 30 something percent, which is huge. But still, everyone gets diluted down as you bring investment in. And you have to bring investment in to grow fast. Mm-hmm. So so we talk in terms of billions, but it doesn't mean that I'm sitting here with a billion dollars, right? But, but, I can be if my company goes to 10 million or something like that. So so I, I, I provide that just for a reality check for most entrepreneurs who have sold a company for several hundred million. Very rarely are they sitting on several hundred million. million. Yeah, and so you're kind of obliged to go again because you're not sitting on several hundred million. <laughs> I think one of the fascinating things about your companies is that you don't have any employees. And I know you refer to this as the kind of hub model. Um, why do you think that has been so successful to to bring in contractors rather than uh, actually, you know, give give people a regular paycheck? Well, well, for me, it was it was a personal decision because I, when I looked at my regular career, I'd spent you know seventy five percent of my time in a meeting room talking about how to keep employees happy, 
instead of talking about the customer and how to keep the customer happy. And that bothered me always. Uh, and I was, you know, I had a good career. I was very good at the bullshit. I could bullshit as good as anybody in those situations. And, but for my own company, I didn't want that. I didn't want that. The, the, the employees are really are a pain in the butt. Um, <laughs> They, they, they start with, they love startups. So most employees love startups. It's exciting. And then, you know, after about six months, when they realize that they might not get paid this month because cash flow is an issue, you know, you've got to, cash flow takes a while to figure out in any, in any company. They, they, their personalities change and they become very difficult to work with. And then after a year, typically, and I know I'm generalizing, but it's been the experience of a lot of entrepreneurs I've helped. After a year, they turn around and say, look, if, you're, if I don't get a pay rise, I'm leaving and I'm taking this know-how with me. And it becomes a threat and it becomes a very, very toxic environment. I've seen that happen so many times. I didn't want that in my own world. And also I wanted to focus on growth, not on holding hands of disgruntled employees. So for me, it was a personal decision and I didn't know if it was going to work. So what I've done in my pre in my last employment with John, what I've done is when, when we were in launch mode, we didn't have enough people or enough things. And so we would find somebody who does that function and bolt them onto us for six months. And so my brilliant, idea was why not just bolt them on anyway and make and, and they'll become my my company and all i have and so what i had to do is change my um my management style from thinking like a supervisor which we tend to do in the corporate world where it's hierarchical and start to think trust peer on peer so i had to change the way i i communicate and and, and the way i think because these people don't want to be supervised they're contractors they they know what they're doing they really don't want you anywhere near them so you know their, their attitude although they'd never say it is please get out of the way and let me get on with my job that's nice for me. I like that because I'm a lazy guy. I love it when people say, please, please don't bother me. Um, you know, I'll go and lie in a hammock. That's great. And so, <laughs> so the HUD model does that for you. These people are really good at what they do. They get on with the job. If they don't do a good job, you don't renew the contract. So there's no, you don't have to have this, you know, try and help the employee improve type of thing. Um, I've just found it a pleasure to work. And, and the funny thing was, it becomes very easy for the, as an entrepreneur, you, ha- you end up with all of this spare time. And, and so after about two years, I took a vacation. I went to England actually for three weeks and my phone didn't work and I was panicking. And when I got back, uh, it was a family vacation. So I couldn't, I couldn't escape early. And when I, when I got back, I thought, oh, it's gotta be, it's gotta be chaos, right? The, the, the people be wondering where's he gone or the, all the fires that need to be put out now. And when I got back and I called the different contractors, nobody had noticed I was missing. No, <laughs> I didn't even notice I'd gone. And it was a real, sh- I said, wow. At first, my ego went, oh, I feel a bit indignant about this. Surely they must have missed me. And then I realized, wow, this thing runs itself. And so the hub model runs itself, and it makes life a pleasure as an entrepreneur because you can just step back. You become more of a conductor of an orchestra. Like a conductor might not be as good at playing any of the instruments that the, 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 the players are. They're, they're brilliant at playing their instruments, but he can, the conductor can uh, find harmony. And I think in, in the hub model, my role as an entrepreneur is to find people that work, the, the, the contractors and the vendors that will work well together. And, and that's mm-hmm. it. And then once you find them and once you put them together, you can pretty much, you know, go and lie in a hammock for most of the day. Is, is there time there building relationship? Because like, a, 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 I like that analogy, the conductor in the orchestra, but the, the conductor yeah, has to have a really good relationship with the first violinist. Otherwise they can't get that performance out of them. Yeah, it's, it's, I find it's one of respect. Um, so, so the vendors, you know, now obviously some, most of them I've worked with several times through several different companies in, in different areas, and so now the respect is there. But uh, one thing that I thought I found very important, um, you know, in a regular company, 
you take time to praise people. Uh, if you hear from a customer, the customer says, "Oh, you know, uh, Donna was fantastic on customer service. He really made, he really helped me out." Then you go and tell that person. The 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 challenge with the vendor thing is that you can forget to do that because yeah. uh, they're so good at what they do. So I made sure that I every time I got a good news story that I contacted them and told them and shared them and thanked them for their part in making this happen, even if their part was really quite small. I didn't realize how important that was. And and one day I went to visit one of my manufacturers for a very small product that we had, and everyone came to see me. Everyone got off the shop floor, um, for want of a better word, and came and heard that I was in the building and came to see me. And then I bought them all pizza and we sat around and we talked about the patients that are being helped by this. They were fascinated. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. But no one does that with the vendors. They just say, oh, here's your contract. This is what we need. Get it to us by Friday. Um, I think it's really important to establish that rapport which is one of mutual respect. I respect them for what they do and their contribution, and they respect me for, for, for seeing them, you know, for, for truly seeing them for who they are. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, Trevor, there, there's so much more I uh, I want to ask you, but I'm conscious of time. So I've got one last question for you. Um, if you were to, to go back and give that little boy um, walking up, up the brow of that hill, encountering those cows, uh, <laughs> at one piece of advice, uh, what, what would you say? I think, I've, I think I learned it as I got older that it's so easy to allow other people to force limits on you. So one of my favorite quotes is something I would quote to myself when I was seven. And that is that the true measure of freedom is to be independent of the good opinion of others. Most people would say, okay, protect yourself from people's criticism. Yes, that's a given. But a lot of, I found as a kid, you know, I would make decisions because I wanted approval or I wanted to be loved. Or I wanted to get more love from my parents. or I wanted approval from my peers at school. And so I'd make decisions that weren't in my best interest, but ones that made them comfortable. And then I learned as I got older that you have to be a little bit more bloody minded than that. And if you want to be successful, so it's to, to, to live independent of the good opinion of others, not easy to do. And, and uh, it's one of the things I teach in the transformation experience is that getting the individual mindset back, make decisions that are in your best interest, because then you can lead by example. But if you're making interest, if you're making decisions that are in everybody else's best interests, but are not good for you, you'll end up in the quicksand. And, and that's kind of, that's what I would tell myself. Amazing, amazing advice. Trevor, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Why Life's a Pitch podcast. If you'd like to improve the way you pitch and communicate, I'm giving away a special gift to all my listeners. We've developed the Pitching with Impact scorecard to help you benchmark your pitch performance in six key areas. It will take you less than five minutes to complete and you'll receive a detailed personalized report packed full of insights and ideas to help you improve and grow. Just head over to dominiccolenso.com forward slash scorecard to get started.